0: Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tirod. Today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Tim Freak. Tim is a philosopher, a prolific author, a speaker, podcaster, based in England. Tim is one of my favorite new thinkers, or new to me, who I've come across in the past couple years. I've really enjoyed digging into his work. He's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Jesus Mysteries and his most recent book is called Soul Story. He has a podcast called The Freak Show. That's F-R-E-K-E. Be sure to check out his website at timfreak.com. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, Tim. Hi, Stan. Lovely to see you. Yeah, and I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me.
1: Um, My pleasure.
0: I wanted to tell you how I first became aware of you was A couple years ago, I finished writing my book called Living from the Soul, and my friend Kat Courtney read that and said, oh, you need to read Soul Story. Have you heard of Tim Freak? (laughs) Wonderful. That was my introduction to you, and I went on to devour a number of your books and all of your podcast episodes. So going back to Kat, how did you meet her?
1: I can't remember. <laughs> um, I've been to Katz when she was living in in Las Vegas. She invited me over and I did a number of retreats in her house, in different houses, two at least. I think it was two or three um, in, in Vegas um, some time ago now. And she'd come to me, I think, through Lucid Living. Um, did we meet somehow or did she just read the book and contact me? I honestly can't remember. It was a long time ago. But yes, I love her a bit.
0: That's terrific. I actually didn't know that you had had that much contact with her. Yeah. That you had done retreats together. So that's excellent.
1: Yeah, a lot. She was, very, um, she was uh, very keen to help promote what I was doing and to experience what I do because a lot of what I do is experiential. And I think she really got the human side of it. I wanted to embrace these kind of deep mystical oneness, but also wanted to have the, the human embodied sense as well which I think really spoke to where she was finding herself coming from and helped her with some other issues that she had going on with other teachings and things like that at the time.
0: That's great. Just to explain one reason or one example of how I resonate so much with what you've done. I've always loved quotes from books and I grew up fundamentalist Christian so in the beginning it was the Bible. Particular Bible verses would stand out to me. Then I After college, especially, I got into the early church theologians, and uh, I would collect quotes from them here and there. And I had an idea at one point of collecting all these great quotations I had assembled into a library of books, which I pictured it as called the Golden Key Library, because I thought of these quotes as keys that would unlock the secrets of the universe. And the, the first book that came out of it, is called A Flame, Ancient Christian Wisdom on Marriage. This was published in 2005 and it collected a lot of quotes both from the Bible and the ancient Christian theologians. And then after learning about you, I, I came across your series of books of quotations from ancient uh, spiritual works. This one I've got right here is The Wisdom of the Pagan Philosophers. But I was struck by the spines of the books even are <laughs> we, have, we have the identical spine the black spine with yeah. with white the gold gold along the side of the book
1: fantastic so
0: it's it's incredible i feel like i had these ideas that i was working on and i didn't know that you had already done it
1: <laughs> and you know it might be i i would have to ask car haven't spoken for a little while but she might have actually come through my christian work because Mm. It was the work on Gnostic Christianity that really, kind of suddenly, especially in America, suddenly people knew my work. So it might have been that.
2: Mm.
1: How wonderful! So yes, is it quotes good good ideas? Pick them up wherever you can find them.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I had a lot more faith back then in books. Right, I would right, say. right, right. Now I'm now I'm much more interested in experience, right. and I don't believe that the that words contain the secrets of the universe.
1: Well, I think words and experience go together. That's the key. If you think, if you separate them from each other, Mm, then words become like a map that you never use to go anywhere.
2: Mm.
1: They become an abstract thing of no use. But if the way in which we communicate with each other, pass concepts together, actually changes our experience, then words are fantastic because they're like a very high-tech way of being able to exchange what's in my soul with what's in your soul. Yeah.
0: There are definitely important signposts pointing to the meaning, pointing to the experience that is beyond words.
1: Maybe. I'm not so sure about that, you know, Sam, anymore. I'm not sure. It depends what you mean beyond words. You know, there's words and there's concepts. Um, you know, the words, obviously, we have different words in different languages for the same concept. So, and we can't get to the concept without the symbol, which is the word. And then the concept itself, which we symbolise with the word, that's the thing with which we perceive the nature of reality and I would have said if you'd spoken to me uh, probably as little as 10 years ago maybe even less than that that I would have gone down the road which is very common uh, most of my books have got this in them that there's a kind of a a pre-conceptual or a trans-conceptual state in which you just connect and know something in some way because That's important to my experience, but I'm not at all sure that's right anymore. I think actually what it is, is that we are not consciously conceptualizing things, but we're still perceiving. And to perceive anything, I think we need this, we need the psyche or the soul to to process information in some way. So that one of the things which holds spirituality back, I think, is that it has this idea that some things you just know directly through revelation either in the biblical sense with prophecy, or in the Eastern sense through enlightenment, say. So people have then these profound experiences, which are incredibly important, and think that the interpretation of them is given in the experience, and I'm not sure it is. Hmm. I think what happens is people assume an interpretation is given in the experience, because they've actually had the interpretation given to them previously. That's why it gets stuck, so it carries on thinking its interpretation is it, but it's not, it's an interpretation. And that's why it's very difficult to get spirituality to go, maybe that interpretation, say the Enlightenment interpretation, or indeed the kind of revelatory interpretation, perhaps they're not, the experience is is for real, but what is the experience? What does it show? That may not be quite as obvious.
0: Yeah, I would say what I've come to believe is that the experience is more important than the interpretation, because for years I grew up Christian, but never had a spiritual experience myself. So, it was all reading other people's interpretations of their experience. And the important thing was to agree to the correct interpretation of someone else's experience. And if I would intellectually assent to a certain interpretation, then I would be saved. Yes. And uh, <laughs>
1: uh, very, su- yeah, crazy, superficial nonsense for sure. But, you know, the, everything comes together so the experience i mean i've just finished the retreat now and and it's just a delight to see uh, you know we had a group of whatever it was we did it in our house actually we had 20 people here and everyone went through and had the experience or had their version of the experience and that's absolutely you're right I mean, you're so right if you haven't got that it's a bit like reading endless books on eating the cake it's like <laughs> it's when you eat one you're gonna go wow sugar wow that really blows your mind doesn't it yeah that's true however I also think that they've gone home on Monday and they will need an interpretation in order to live their lives yeah. because life is a complex thing. So it's a bit like, you know, do you want food or do you want water? It's like, well, you, you want both.
0: Yeah, my connection stopped after you talked about food and water.
1: I should have chosen bread and wine, shouldn't I? Just put it in
0: context.
1: <laughs> make, it sound, make it sound a little bit more, you know. But yes, so, so all, all, all I'm saying is I think, I think you're absolutely right. And you know what the great failing of religion as its common is it's full of interpretation and, and low on experience. Mm-hmm. But both are valuable, yeah. really important, actually. And inevitably people will interpret their experience. They have to. Yes. Yeah. So they will interpret it in some way. And so the way you interpret it then also becomes very important. The focus is still experience, but they, they both complement each other
2: yeah.
1: in some way. You want the deepest experience and the deepest interpretation. That's what I feel, let's go for the both.
0: Yeah, that is good. And for me, it was important to have the experience. I'm reminded of something Young said, that the purpose of religion is to protect us from having a spiritual experience. (laughs) (laughs) So I think often often a lot of the established uh, religions and churches, they want to keep people from having their own individual experience so that they can keep focusing on what's written down in the books, the experiences of others.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of that. I mean, but also, you know, it's complex, isn't it? I mean, we live here. We've got, we had the biggest abbey in Europe here. It's the first Christian center in the country. Just down the road, tiny little town was the city, even though it's small, Mm -hmm. because it has a huge cathedral. And a lot of people put in a a huge amount of effort to build this huge, beautiful cathedral to have an experience in. Yeah. So they could go there and listen to marvelous music and incense and hear scripture read and do funny rituals and just have an experience. You know, so it's there as well, even in those religions. It's just, it's just, it all evolves, it moves on. Yeah. And I don't think to the modern mind, once the individual has reached a certain level of rationality then the fact that it's in an old book is not gonna do it anymore. Then it needs to be more. Mm-hmm. And it also, the way we've individualized, I think you're right with that as well, that, we've, that the, there has been, without doubt, I mean, even then, I suspect that the emphasis was on a communal experience. We're having this together mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's much more, we're in, we've become so much more individuated in, in Jung's sense of individuation and, and it becomes about our individual experience. One of the great transformations of the Protestant revolution in in christian thought was the beginnings of that movement towards your individual you have your own relationship with god rather than just a collective Mm -hmm. and now we've really taken that on a long way yeah and i think most people in modern spirituality are looking for their own relationship with the oneness or with god or whatever word they give to Mm it
0: i know you've moved on beyond the jesus mysteries which was one of your best known early books but I, I love that book. I read all four books in the series. Oh,
1: great. Oh, thank you.
0: And I uh, enjoyed them. I've recommended them to other people. So I would like to talk a little about that. Yeah. First, I'm interested in your co-writing relationship. You wrote all these books with Peter Gandy. I did. It's unusual for, for two people to work on so many books together.
1: We wrote about seven together, actually, others as well. The one you just held up, the Pagan Philosophers, I think we did together as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm seeing him tonight, funnily Oh, enough.
0: wow. That was my, I was going to ask if you're still friends. I certainly am. Yes,
1: always we'll, al- we'll always be friends. We'll be friends till one of us dies. And then probably after that too. Great. We've, been, we've known each other since we were very young. And we've been having one conversation, really, for about whatever it is, 50 years. Um, which is what the hell is this? And so, and, that's what, and that's, what, that's what will happen tonight. We'll get there and then we'll pick up on what the hell is this and off we'll go and we'll share our latest thoughts, latest people we've been talking to, books we've been reading, whatever it is, to take that deeper. And strangely, because it doesn't happen obviously that often and, and it hasn't happened for me with that many people, there is a few others actually. Um, we've we've kind of made that that journey together in that I will see him sometimes. I usually I see him quite regularly, but even when there's been long periods, we kind of seem to be in the same place or we, we, there's a resonance. So when we work together, um, it was great and complimentary because he he has an attention to detail and to uh, historical um, detail. Really, it's that kind of ability to accumulate yeah. the re- research which I. I'm not so patient with, but I'm very good at ordering things, theorizing, bringing it into a narrative um, so we can do it together.
0: Yeah, that's great. When I've written things with other people, it's often a great struggle, (laughs) one of the hardest experiences. And, you know, even a friend, I might not get along with them so well when it comes to making editing decisions.
1: The very first thing that happened when we worked together was the editor went, you know, you or publisher, was it wasn't, said, You know, you'll never speak to each other after this, don't you? <laughs> and, and then describe, I mean, the nightmares where, yeah. you know, even with my like, mother, they'd just done a mother and daughter, and they just said, you know, one would leave the room to go to the restroom, and the other one would go change that, move that, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like behind their back, and, you know, whereas none of that happens with me and Pete, ever. And if there was a disagreement, there's a few, but not much, and where we did, we, you know, we'd sort them out. So we're very lucky. It was more like we wanted the same thing and we had to persuade the publishers to allow us to do it. It was a like more, more that way around. Yeah. So we weren't, uh, we weren't the, two, the two of us. And then when we came to do the, the comedy gospel, the gospel of the same coming, uh-huh. it was a delight because we could just write to make each other laugh. And we just pass these things, you know, I'd write to make him laugh, he'd write to make me laugh, and we'd pass it between us and it was just great fun.
0: Has he written more on his own? Or?
1: No, Pete's not. And that's because he finds that hard you know, he finds it hard to structure it all and do the things I do. So he, he just thinks in a different way.
0: Well, the book you collaborated on, The Jesus Mysteries, it was a bestseller here in the US as well.
1: Yeah.
2: And
0: the the basic argument is that the search for the historical Jesus is misguided, because rather than being a historical prophet who was crucified and then Stories began to and legends began to accumulate around him. You argue that Jesus never existed as a historical man, but rather there was a mythological figure of Joshua or Jesus, and then stories began to accumulate about him being an actual man who lived. That a fair summation? Beautifully put. (laughs) It was an argument I had never given much thought to. I'd read the Bart Ehrman book actually several years ago, and he so he tears into your book. <laughs> I did not like it, but I had forgotten that. You know, I had forgotten that he ever mentioned your book by the time I read yours. But I, I found it very convincing, even though I remained agnostic at the end. I, I have no idea whether Jesus lived as a historical man or not. But I thought that there's so much of value in your book, whether or not you agree with that thesis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I. I think you'd be foolish to be sure about anything in history mm. or about anything at all, really. Yeah. So for me, it's just about plausibility. And where I ended up with it with Peter was the two things you've mentioned, really, was that the weight of evidence. There's no like one thing which you go, well, that proves it. It's more like, hang on, if you put all of this on one side and all of this on the other side, which is more plausible? Well, the evidence suggests it's much more plausible to me that we're dealing with a mythological figure that's been literalized than we are a literal figure that's been mythologized. Mm. Certainly, the traditional view, I think, is very, very implausible. Um, but the two academic views, as the, the one most popular, which is that there's a man under there somewhere, but we'll never find him, and it's been mythologized, um, I actually think that makes sense to the modern mind because the modern mind doesn't understand the ancient world mm. as full of mythology. But once you go, look, the mythology of the ancient world is a bit like the science fiction of the modern world. Then, you know, the idea that there must have been a Luke Skywalker mustn't there because, <laughs> you know, someone said those things. And, you know, it's like uh, somewhere under there, there's the real person. It's like, no, this the world was full of these stories. And the same with this. The world was full of these stories. And these are the same stories and a bit like. The Star Wars mirrors previous books that were written and takes this idea from there. And same with this. It just takes ideas from all over, creates something new and wonderful. So there's that. And then especially in the follow-up book, Jesus and the Goddess, or the Lost Goddess, I think it is in America, that was the one for me. Because there, my mystical bent could have free expression and go, okay, so if this is right, and this is an allegorical initiatory myth designed to lead you to the gnosis, What's its significance? And then, wow, that was the, that's when Christianity really came alive for me. And to this day, I mean, just today, I've been working on new philosophy and doing some stuff around Christianity. And and just the profundity of it blows me away in a way that I didn't recognize before that process. I mean, I'd always loved it. I almost became a friar, actually. And I had a, a mentor who was a Franciscan friar who was very important to me. But it was that understanding the mythos and that it was about me or you yeah. and my discovery of the Christ. That was like, yeah, this is deep stuff here.
0: I think that is the great realization that Jesus represents each of us. We're all Jesus in a sense.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what Jung was onto. I think he realized that, which is why he's the grandfather of so much of the new thought that's around now. He saw that it was like, ah, well, that was the significance of that story. And just because it's similar or drew on previous pagan and Jewish myths I really don't think it should eclipse the fact that it really took things to a new level and that that what it births is something very very significant and that's why it plays such a big role in the world and still is.
0: I was describing your book to someone who's pretty well read in theology and he said what what convinces him that Jesus was a historical man is his concern for the poor and the downtrodden. He felt that the mythological figures like Osiris and Dionysus didn't have this concern for the poor of their day. So
1: completely right. That is the big shift hmm. that you get. I mean, you kind of have some of that, not in the mythological stuff, maybe in Socrates and so forth, but it is a big shift. That's what comes, this love, God is love. Where did that come from? You know, God's not love beforehand, but now God is love and it's not the God of justice or retribution or there's just not many deities that you wouldn't want to trust with anything because they're capricious. This is a big jump. And then the love of your enemies, I think is the, is the one. It's like, whoa, this is deep. And the forgiveness, 70 times seven. How many times should I forgive? If someone hits you on the left, turn the right cheek. All of this, this is revolutionary ideas. They've been bubbling around. They don't come from nowhere. And somebody's saying them, somebody's feeling them. And there's probably a whole community that's exploring them. And the, the root I think is in, probably in Pythagorean thought. So Jewish Pythagoreans are my guess who are, who are putting this together. And that's why they're combining what is pagan mythology from the whole of Egypt with Jewish mythology, which they're practicing as well, um, and putting those together. But you know, that's like, if you take a great playwright like Shakespeare, you take the soliloquies of Hamlet, you've never seen anything like that before, to be or not to be. That is the question. This is like, well, it sounds like somebody's actually saying it. There must have been a Hamlet. It was like, no, but there was a Shakespeare, or there was somebody who wrote those lines who had that sensitivity and put them into the mouths of Hamlet. And if you go back to things like the Hermetic tradition, we, Peter and I did a book on the Hermetica, yeah. and it's full of teachings all put into the mouth of Hermes because it's a common thing. It's not been said by Hermes, it's been said by a whole load of different people over many, many decades, if not centuries, but it's a common conceit is to to take your words and out of devotion, put them in the words of the master, who's Hermes or Joshua, Jesus.
0: Yeah, it seems like this must have been a group of religious geniuses or mythological geniuses at this time, creating this body of work.
1: Yes, I think it happened over quite some time as well. So. You know, once you get rid of the year zero, you can go back, you know, it might be going back a lot further than we think. We know that there's probably a group like the Therapeuti in Alexandria, outside Egypt, who are, they're the Jews. They're practicing what looks like the mysteries of Moses, seeing that the story of the Exodus, particularly as an allegorical myth leading to Gnosis. Joshua is the figure in that myth that leads you to the promised land, which is Gnosis. And then that's being mixed in with the idea of this dying and resurrecting God-man, which is the pagan idea. Mm-hmm. And those two are getting mixed together with the Jewish idea of the Messiah, who will come and then set everyone free, bring salvation. And so you get this sort of blending of ideas. There's so many other texts which do this. Once you see that context, then you go, oh, these are, these are, these are similar, aren't they? They're another version. And I think there were amazing people, Valentinus and Simon Magus probably, Basilides, who Jung writes under that pseudonym because he's obviously very influenced by him. Yeah, over a period, there's some, some brilliant people. There's a spiritual revolution happens.
0: One thing we have in the US right now, I, I don't know that you have it so much in Britain, But there's a large number of politicians using Christianity to promote a politics of tax cuts for the wealthy, slashing social programs. (laughs) So I think think here especially it's important to remind them of the words of Jesus and going back to the Bible. It perhaps gives it a certain importance here that uh, you don't have in Britain. Uh,
1: We don't tend to to do religion in that way in politics over here. We are a very secular country Um, and it's probably a good thing. Actually, I think yeah but yes, I, you know, I mean, I do see what goes on in the states around it and and it is it is strange because the, the vision which is there is is a radical, i mean maybe too radical I, I remember Peter's father was a vicar in the Church of England, and I remember him saying once yes give all your money away to the poor he said but, but if but if i did that i'd just be one of the poor how would that help and, <laughs> and it's like yeah maybe it's all maybe it's too radical maybe it's like too you know kind of utopian right but it is that's the direction it takes that's what it's bringing into the world isn't it and it's a beautiful vision even if it is we need that vision
2: yeah
1: of of that level of love and connection that whole you know when i was in prison did you visit me and you know did you feed me i mean these are these are amazing thoughts. And then there's other stuff, to be honest, which I really don't like at all, all the gnashing of teeth. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, I really could do without that stuff. You know, we need to edit that out. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's, I think, why I've moved on. I, I more resonate with someone like a Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm-hmm. perhaps because he's more about how to live well in our context today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, my focus is very much on this process of evolution, which I think is what we're in. that spirituality like everything else is evolving and so i am fascinated by the great transformations that happened in the whole evolution of the universe let alone the evolution of human culture and these people played a role and my my feeling you know after the books which you read you know you short showed a big you know all the books on christianity but also on buddhism and taoism and and uh, hinduism and all the rest of it and then it kind of got to the point where i felt like ah What I really should be doing here is doing what they did. And what they did, which is why I'm bothering to share their quotes, is they took everything forward. That's why we remember who they are, because they went, oh, how can we understand this spiritual heritage in a new way? Because we've got more information now. We're standing on the shoulders of the people that went before us. So that, I think, is what we should be doing.
0: Yeah, I wanted to play some word association, give you some phrases (laughs) that I would love to hear you say a few words about. Okay. And the first is uh, uniting science and spirituality. That's an interest of mine, and I feel it's a strong theme in your work. And that's one thing that draws me to you. you. You were just talking about evolution. So uniting science and spirituality.
1: Yeah, big subject. I think that's my main focus at the moment, Sam, It's like we need a new, what I call a philo story, an overarching narrative, which can embrace the incredible information that science has given us with the validity of spiritual experience and understanding what that is. And I think the narrative that can do that is the evolutionary one. That So that what I'm following is this. Incredibly simple idea of really two simple ideas, I think, which but they go together, is that what we're in is the the one in relationship with itself, and that everything is one thing relating to itself. And that's a restatement of the ancient mystical understanding uh, in the kind of modern context. And that what the other thing we've understood is that it's not a thing, it's a process. And that process sees the emergence of new possibilities, the realization of new possibilities all the time. This is a new possibility. We've never done this before. This has happened there and on and on and on and on. And that's taken us from 14 billion years ago, the universe full of pretty much hydrogen and helium, little bit of helium to you and me having this conversation. And that's an incredible process. And I think if we can understand that process and then not make the mistake, which is associated with science, which is that they kind of cut off at biology, but actually carry on understanding the evolution of the psyche. Psyche is just the Greek word for soul. It's the evolution of the soul and how the spiritual realities have arisen from biological realities, which arose from physical realities. So you've got one process, which has taken us from actually a pre-material state, which, which is what quantum physics looks at, where literally it's information, it's waves, of information it's not it's not waves in anything even it's just like information that will arise as matter as the vast physical universe that will at least here give rise to biology life life will give rise to psyche this non-material world of images that's what spirituality has always been about even from early shamanic times that that's a whole domain opens up there and that from that i think is emerging spiritual realities like the psyche can survive the death of the body and things like that. And indeed God, I mean, my conception of God has turned completely on its head. I've experienced God since I was a little boy and had a big experiences along the way. And obviously kind of just did what everyone does. I took the understanding that was around me. So imagine the big power of some thought, loving presence, very benign, which created the whole thing or which was dreaming the whole thing or which was the source. Um, And there's all sorts of philosophical problems with that, which we can explore, which are very common, like, you know, where does evil come from? And why is it so weird? And what about dinosaurs? That's a bit strange and (laughs) all of that sort of stuff. But once you flip it around and you go, oh, hang on, maybe if this is an evolutionary process. That's not where it started. That's where it's going. So that this transcendent being of love, which many of us experience, to come back to the very start of the conversation, is not the source. It's actually the destination the universe is flowering into what you could call god or something greater than our individuality of which we get to commune and be a part so that's the kind of very 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 quick route i think we can successfully combine these two and i think we must yeah. we really need spirituality to be back on the table and at the moment in our secular culture it's either like you're saying a kind of stuck in the past and like not very helpful or it's just been dismissed and it needs to come back in in a new form and go, no, 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 there's really important insights here. And that again is what people like Carl Jung were trying to do.
0: The next phrase I wanted you to address ties into this. It's scientific materialism. So that would be science without spirituality.
1: Yes. We've got, you know, science, science arose with deeply spiritual people. I mean, people like Newton was an alchemist and, So if you see the evolution of ideas, you can see how we ended up where we are. So these are people that think that God is running the universe, as does everyone. And they have discovered the rules with which he runs the universe. So when you have Newton, who is absolutely monumental figure, and it's hard to really get the impact, I think, to really get that here was someone who could have worked out with a, a few symbols and mathematics how you could explain something falling like the apple and also how the stars rotated. I mean, before, that would have been unthinkable. Yeah. That's a universal law for the whole universe. Not as above, so below, any of that, but the whole universe. Huge insight. And for him and the other, this is the rules. So, so they're the laws. They're the laws of nature, and they're called laws because they're decreed by God. <laughs> and God decrees the laws, and then the universe obeys. Once you get rid of God at the beginning, you've got laws, but no lawmakers. Are there laws, actually? And I think it's the problem, the key idea is the idea that there's laws of nature. Because if you have laws of nature, then the basic laws of physics are really running everything else. So what really exists is matter. Biology is an epiphenomena or a side effect. The psyche is an epiphenomena or a side effect of biology. And it can really, what's really here is matter or now, you know, quantum information. But if you take this idea of evolution seriously, if you go, maybe everything evolves in this one process of evolution, as some physicists also are thinking now, people like Lee Smolin, particularly, for instance, then you have a very different idea, which is maybe there are no laws. Maybe they're more akin to habits or regularities or algorithms even. And that these are themselves evolving. And once you've got that, then you've got a creative universe because it's evolving these regularities on this level, but then it moves to the next level though it hasn't got the regularities. And then it evolves regularities on that level and then it moves. And there's a creative element, which means you can't reduce biology to physics and you can't reduce the psyche to biology. The more emergent levels are more than. And once you do that, then you move away from all of that reductionist, pulling it down to low levels. And suddenly you can return dignity to the human experience because science, has, that philosophy and materialism has taken it away. It's gone, you two may think you're having this conversation, but really you're not. There's no free will. There's no real intellect. You know, I may love my wife, but it's just, just chemicals. And the whole of your humanity is drained away. You, you think you love God, but that's clearly an illusion. <laughs> you know, none of those experiences are real. But then none of your ordinary experiences are real either. So I think we can turn that around that's an old 18th century idea, really, 17th mm-hmm. century even. Science has become stuck with that old idea, a bit like religion gets stuck with our old ideas. Yeah. And it's just found it difficult to let go and move on.
0: Yeah, even during my agnostic years, I've had this instinctive revulsion against that idea that everything is reducible to biology mm-hmm. and chemistry
1: yeah, it's a horrible idea. And, and, it, and it ends up with that determinism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which you'll see in really good thinkers. I mean, there's you know, Sam Harris and others.
2: Yeah.
1: Once you've got the idea, there are regularities on the basic level and they run everything. Then they're running what I'm saying now. If only I could see it. Yeah. And that means this whole conversation is a waste of time. But <laughs> well, it means everything is a waste of time and there's no meaning in life. Whereas I don't think that at all. I think, I think life is full of meaning and the experiences with which we started off this conversation are they feel don't they you know you tell me for me they feel more real why because they're more emergent they're another level of evolution and when you hit that next level of evolution you go wow this feels really real you don't feel oh this is some passing fantasy that I'm having here about awakening it's like no it feels like wow I'm, I'm seeing it all for the first time this is This is what it really is. And I think that's because the evolutionary process didn't stop with biology. It's going on. And spiritual awakening is is actually the the leading edge of uh, the evolutionary process.
0: The idea you mentioned of Newton conceiving of a cosmic lawmaker, that was definitely an idea of that time. You had John Locke and uh, Blackstone and so much concern with law at that time. It's interesting how that translated into science. I'm a huge fan of Rupert Sheldrake, who also talks a lot about how we should conceive of these as habits of nature rather than laws.
1: He does. and I mean, Rupert is a great thinker. I I, I think he's a really important voice. And he took that from Charles Sanders Peirce, who's someone I haven't been familiar with when I wrote Soul Story, but realized that he prefigured a lot of the ideas in Soul Story, as had um, Alfred uh, Whitehead and various others as well. You know, you find out eventually, but of course there's loads of people out there who have been thinking these thoughts and trying to develop them. And Rupert's definitely someone who, who, often I find out afterwards that people have said similar things to me and I follow them up later. But with Rupert, I read him when I was very young, in my you know, late teens, when his early books. Mm. And, and he was definitely an influence. So it's been great that I've been able to connect with him and, and, make, and make a couple of movies with him because I think he's a really interesting thinker
0: yeah you mentioned sam harrison free will i've <laughs> read several of his books listened to a number of his podcasts one thing he talks about is a study where the body seems to make a decision before we're consciously aware of making a choice yeah and this to me brings the mind the image of an athlete who certainly acts instinctively you know catching and throwing the ball yeah their body is acting on instinct, but this is based on years and years of training, exactly, which is a conscious choice. So I, yeah, I believe that we do have free will, we make choices, but then these become ingrained as habits. And sometimes uh, habits arise unconsciously. Mostly. Yeah. Our goal should be to obtain more and more free will.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right, because we have the ability to place consciousness in, within our process. The thing which, that you know, it's a common um, thing. And I, I, I mean, my take on it really is like, well, there's this kind of prejudice, I think, that the conscious bit of you is the thing which chooses or you are the conscious bit. Whereas I don't think that's right at all. I think you are, I am the whole system. And the vast majority of what I choose is unconscious, but I'm still choosing it. Yeah. It's unconscious. And then I have this ability to focus on that process which slows it down. The whole point with consciousness is if you want a fast reaction, if it's an emergency, you can't go, oh, hang on a second. Let me just think this through. you just got to respond. Yeah. And which is why if you're a sports person, you need to have learned it so well that you just do it. Yeah. But like you said, in order to get to that place or as a musician, you have to practice. And what does that mean? Slow it down, do it consciously. So this ability to reflect in one way gets in the way which is why, you know, if you're reflecting too much, it's like, oh, stop reflecting and just act for heaven's sake. But why it was so, so good for the evolution of the human species and why it's helped us to become the dominant species on the planet is you can imagine two possibilities and then do the one that you end up thinking makes sense. So now, actually, although it's taken you all that time and energy, you've saved them a huge amount of time and energy that would have gone on making a mistake. There's more chance that you will choose the right thing. And that's done us very well. And it's enabled us to create Zoom and the internet and science <laughs> and everything. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's a huge thing. All that experiment shows is that the system makes a choice and then reflects on it. That's all it shows. And that's exactly what happens. And if you make a choice, it's because two possibilities arise and then you make a choice. Otherwise, you're just witnessing, you can witness, oh, I've done that. And then you can inhibit that if you're quick enough. You can go, whoa, don't do that. So I don't think it, it says anything about choice in that experiment. I think it's just interesting about human psychology. It doesn't dismiss choice at all.
0: Yeah. I've thought that people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and the scientific materialists, they must be very naturally happy people. (laughs) because being i love
1: that i know so finish your sentence but i know where you're going and it's lovely
0: (laughs) because i'm someone prone to melancholy and often on the edge of depression and when i contemplate those ideas it leads to total despair i if i believed what they believe i wouldn't function i wouldn't do anything
1: yeah yeah I, I, i there's a lovely observation, Sam. you're probably right i yeah i i haven't had the opportunity to have an in-depth conversation with one of them i would jump at the opportunity in my what is life series because what i would like to ask i did approach richard dawkins but i think he's a bit old now for it but is to really go you know because i think he you know he once said he said look i'm attacking religion but i'm not attacking he said i'm not attacking what einstein called the cosmic religious feeling and my my expectation is that he actually experiences the cosmic religious feeling, meaning, you know, this wonder of the universe, you know, all of that stuff, and has his own version of spirituality. And that the thing he's really fighting is irrationality. Is like, whoa, this says it in the Bible, therefore it's true. It's like, no, that, no, move on. So he's fighting the Enlightenment battle against mythology. And I suspect, you know, he has friends, and I know who are bishops in the Church of England and things like this. I suspect he's a much more subtle thinker than... And a human being than we suspect. Um, but even so, I do share that thing that for me it feels that what redeems the suffering, and not just my suffering, but all of the innocent suffering, you know, that kind of awfulness of, of the predicament we're in, is what is shown in these deep spiritual experiences. Because it offers that this is going somewhere so good that it can redeem that, and that there's a love so inclusive that it will hold all of that and actually take it somewhere good. So, yeah, huge for me, the same. I'd love to know. I'd love to know how they get through and what they, how they do that. You know, maybe they're very tough people.
0: <laughs> uh, Joseph Campbell said that for a mythology to work, it has to be in line with the science of the day. Yes. For instance, uh, the creation account in Genesis, in the Bible that was completely in line with the Babylonian pre-science of 2,500 years ago. What do you think of a, a mythology emerging today in line with science? To me, it seems the best candidate might be Carl Sagan saying we're all made of stardust and Alan Watts saying we are the universe experiencing itself. We are the eyes, the ears, the mind of the universe. That to me seems like the seed of a new mythology
1: exactly right and and what i spend most of my time doing sam and i've been doing it today i'll do it tomorrow is to try and articulate that um to find a a comprehensive way now soul story was my was the overarching version and the basic version and now i'm working on a much more detailed version to um to really explain and really you know once we realized that the universe had evolved i mean we first of all we realized that all of life had evolved and that was a big jump but then when we realised it's only 100 years ago or so that the whole universe had evolved. And really, it's only been accepted since the 60s. And then everything's fallen into place. Then literally, as Hagan says, we are stardust. Literally, as Alan Watts said and other people before him in the scientific community um, said, you know, we are the universe conscious. We have evolved into being conscious of itself. Well, what else could we be? We're definitely that. Mm. And right now, we're the universe discussing itself and wondering what it is and how best to account for itself. That's what we are. And once you get that, it's really very close now to spiritual ideas of awakening to oneness. Mm -hmm. Because if you move from that purely as an intellectual concept and you step through that into a vision of the reality of it, that's when you move from, well, the the, the word that I'm using these days is you move from an individual to a univigual where a univigual is an individual conscious of unity with the universe. And that really, I think, is what the great, you know, when we talked about earlier about the Gnostic Christians, that's what they were exploring. That, that, hang on, you can reach a place where you're one with the universe or with God or with the whole thing. So this new mythology of the evolving universe can really help us unite all of that together with science.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that this is the concept that has potential to bring together people like Dawkins and Harris with... I, I,
1: I think it could. I mean, I think it could. The, the big jump for them is to see the universe as, is, as, like I said, as creative. And I don't mean that we need necessarily a force of creation or anything like that, which they would object to. All we need is a process of accumulating information where the information accumulates in such a way that it sets down uh, habits or algorithms or patterns that repeat, but they can only ever partially repeat. They can never completely repeat, not least because every moment is a new moment and, and therefore contains something which didn't exist before. And that is the tendency then towards evolving, changing, and then emergence where something brand new, suddenly arrives because of the combination of the different systems in some way. Oh, you know, you get a single cell or you get a multi-cell or you get a water from hydrogen and oxygen, you know, liquid from a gas, all of that stuff. It's like, Whoa, who'd have thought that? And there it is. So their own model of the universe goes, that happens. Otherwise we couldn't get here. The question is, is it like that horrible vision, which Einstein has, which is like times an illusion it's already happened or Is it actually an exquisite process of creativity where you don't know what's going to happen next? And we're at the the leading edge of it, which is why the lower levels or the the more foundational levels tend to repeat, you know, that, that, that I drop something, it will fall, it will fall, it will fall. It's still probabilistic in the sense that I remember a physicist friend of mine explaining to me some time ago. He said, look, it's perfectly possible that you could walk into your office and all the oxygen atoms would all be up in one corner. It's just very, 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 very unlikely. So it never happens. But there's a tendency therefore, And once you get that, then it's like, ah, as it moves up the levels, you know, it's much harder to predict what my body will do. It's almost impossible to predict what my psyche will do. So, you know, if if I drop something, you can predict it will fall. But if I open my mouth, you won't know what I'm going to say. That's where the, the leading edge is now. That's the creativity. And that's where all of the newness in the universe comes from. So Zoom is a new thing in the universe. Now I can be in one country, you can be in a different continent, and we can talk to each other. That's a new thing in the universe. That's never happened before. You know, and on and on and on it goes. And it com- that's coming from the soul, from the imagination.
0: I often heard from scientific people from that perspective that this is a meaningless, purposeless, random universe. There is no love or values, but humans have evolved this mind sort of accidentally, and we've created these concepts. We bring meaning and love. But a, a statement that always stuck with me from C.S. Lewis was how could a dumb universe create creatures so much better than itself?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of want to say both of those things hmm. in a different tone of voice. I, I want to try anyway. I want to say to C.S. Lewis, Wow, look, a dumb universe has created creatures so much greater than itself. That's what it's done. And then to the scientific people, I want to go, in doing so, the universe has brought meaning into existence. This is not some extra that's been added on kind of arbitrarily. The universe, before there was life, the universe was just matter. It had no life in it. Now it has life. It does. It exists. With the arising of the psyche, the universe now has meaning and we're looking for the deepest meaning. That potentiality for meaning has been realized and we're realizing it more and more. We're doing it right now as we speak. You and I are actually looking for, that's what we're doing really, isn't it? We're looking for the, what's the deepest meaning we can find and or create to account for the nature of the universe. So that rather than it being some sort of like, well, it all ends with physics or biology and then we just add nonsense. It's like, no, that nonsense is the most emergent thing. And the universe is now, has meaning, it exists, and it's real, and it matters, and the dumb universe has given birth to life, and life has given birth to thought, and thought has given birth to meaning, and love, and transcendental experiences, and all the rest of it, and possibly even God.
0: <laughs> so humanity is very important in the vision you just laid out, and you talked about how we're on the leading edge of this evolution.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As far as we know, I mean, there might, be, there might be other things going on in the universe. It's a very big place. But in our corner, as far as we know, I mean, everything's evolving and everything has its own beauty. But we've specialized in this most emergent new thing, which is the psyche, the realm of information. But it's not biological information anymore. It's not material information. It's transmaterial information. It exists as images and, and, and thoughts and dreams and all the things that we're in, the thing that you and I are sharing. Actually, we're passing that transmaterial information to and from each other via speech and the internet. That thing, that's where all the actions, and that's why most of life, in the time that we've created culture, most animal life has carried on kind of the same, but we have just gone, because we're that leading edge of, and that's amazing and beautiful, and a lot of responsibility as well
0: and can it last yeah or will we blow it up
1: <laughs> well i th- i you know we could we could if you know if you if you want a universe which is creative and unknown then yeah that's possible but i uh, i don't think we will myself i think um that there are new dangers that we face there's no doubt about that we're getting conscious of them but overwhelmingly what strikes me is how well we've done and I wish people would spend more time recognizing that and being grateful to their ancestors. I know a lot of people that want to be grateful to the ancestors like millions of years ago who are living in you know, shamanic ancestors, but not your own ancestors that has actually created central heating and medicine and meant that your kids won't die. What we've done in a very short period, and a lot of it has come through science, which is actually being a force for great compassion, is uh, you know, we've reduced poverty, unbelievably. We've, we've reduced child mortality. That's now going down everywhere, especially in, in, in Africa. We, we, people are fed uh, compared to what they were. And we have this incredible culture where we can share. You know, it's like, you know, God, who would have thought when I was a kid to say, I'd have this little thing I can put in my pocket and I can just speak to it and say, hey, give me the answer to this. And it will. <laughs> And it will have the wisdom of the world in there where that little book, I can go, hey, what was that quote by Basilidescu? And bang, up it will come. I mean, we have done so well, Sam. I wish we would just be a little bit proud of ourselves. But paralogical, also look at where we need to do better and mistakes we've made and all of that. But, yeah. but also like, God, we've, it is incredible what we've done.
0: Yeah, it's a very encouraging perspective. I know I often get overwhelmed with the problems we face, environmental problems, political problems, and I might look back on the past as though I, it would have been better to be living in the past <laughs> rather than in our modern technological society.
1: Honest to God, Sam, you really wouldn't want to live in the past. I mean, <laughs> the past is not somewhere that anyone wants to live, I don't think. Not really. You know, unless you have a very romanticized version of it. Yeah. Because the past is violent, it's hard, it's cold, it's hungry, it's struggle, it's illness, it's early death, it's child mortality, uh, it's lack of freedoms. It's you know, and we do have problems today. But you know, <laughs> my mother, when she went to to study in London as a young girl, went to London and couldn't see more than a foot in front of her face because the smog was so bad. We don't have that. You know, we held whole cities that were black. None of the cities are black now. You know, it's like we have seen problems, tackled them, moved on. Doesn't mean we haven't got new problems. We have. But overall, you know, we've, we've acted and we can still do that. So part of what, part of why I have this evolutionary optimism is because I think that can give us the confidence, the, the confidary, the faith with faith in existence and ourselves that it's like okay well if we did that we can do the next one we've done you know the transformations that have happened in our own lifetimes you and me i mean i'm an englishman and i'm 62 almost 63 and i have never been to war i don't know that there's any other generation of englishmen that have ever had that ever this is a whole new thing europe's at peace never happened this is you know it may not last but probably will And I hope to go to my death without having to go to to war. And how lovely is that, which has meant I can do philosophy and art. And and while that lasts, our culture gets richer and richer and richer. We look at the transformation in the role of women. Who would have thought that was possible? You know, go back through history. It's like, that's never going to happen. Or with races or with any of it. We look at the problems as if, oh, it's just as bad today as it was then. It really isn't. (laughs) It's better now than it was just in our own youth. You know, when people say to me about, the, in our country, oh, the extremism today, and you just think, wow, you should have been there in the 70s or the 80s, because <laughs> it was so much worse than what we've got now. It doesn't mean that what we've got now can't be better. Yeah. It just means that you've forgotten that it was worse. That's how it looks to me as I get older anyway.
0: Hmm. That's great. Well, it fascinates me that we couldn't have had this conversation. You know, Even Zoom and technology and the internet aside, 200 years ago, we wouldn't have had the concept of evolution.
1: No, exactly. Which
0: is the Isn't basis it? of so much of what we've been talking about.
1: It is the new thing. And that's why it's so exciting. And that's why I think an evolutionary spirituality is the future. And the reason that spirituality is sidelined, it's either that kind of mythological thing you were talking about, where it's you know, used in these crazy ways for political reasons. And, and really, it's about tradition and you know, all of that. And then science has just broke with that. And it's just gone and it's just expanding like never before. The problem is it's associated with a really out of date philosophy. So what we need to do is exactly what you've been saying. We need to come in with a new mythos, which embraces all of that, but sees it in a new light. And then spirituality needs a good kick up the backside to sort of come into the 21st century and stop hanging on to a lot of -of out-of-date ideas, and to be willing to question itself, Um, because the vast majority of it is really past its sell-by date. But the essence is beautiful and important and points to the experience. And this really brings us back, I think, to what we were talking right at the beginning, which is the experiences which are available to us are highly emergent spiritual experiences, that when you have them, they change your life. We just need to understand what they are better. And that's the, the bit we need to add on to them. So we need more and more people to have the experience and to have a better understanding of what they are.
0: It's wonderful. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you. I've explained how much I resonate with your ideas and, and agree with you, but also you challenge me in a lot of ways and push me and uh, you've opened me up to a lot of new ideas. So I'm grateful for all your work and that you took time to talk today.
1: Uh, it's been a real delight, Sam. I've I've loved it, and thank you for the invite. And it's always an honour to get to talk like this. It really is, because it's like it's a it's a lovely thing. I love it.